Welcome to another episode of IPCS Podcasts. My name is Anshuman Chaudhary and I'm your host for today. It has been four months since the military in Myanmar nullified the results of last year's general election, deposed the civilian government and effectively initiated a coup d'etat to take charge of the country. Since then, a lot has happened in Myanmar and a lot has been said about the country. Most prominently, a vibrant and multi-ethnic anti-coup popular resistance under the banner of a civil disobedience movement has emerged in the country. Many have argued that the scale of protests this time has surpassed even those of the past few decades, including the 1988 and 2007 protests. Since the coup, India, a crucial neighbor of Myanmar, has watched the events with caution. So far, it has only made two formal statements, one on the day of the coup on 1st of Feb and another on the 1st of April after a closed-door UN Security Council meeting. The second statement, which condemned the violence unfolding in Myanmar, was slightly harsher in tone than the first. Now to discuss what's going on in Myanmar and India's response to it all, today I have with me someone who has served as a diplomat in some very complex countries, such as Syria, Afghanistan, and of course Myanmar. He's someone who has a very deep understanding of Myanmar's politics and society, and is thus very rightly looked upon by those in India who study the country as a very, very important resource person. Welcome to our podcast, Ambassador Gautam Mukhopadhyay. Thank you for inviting me. Right. I'm having uh, So, Ambassador, I, I'll, this, is a, this is a complex and broad topic, and you would agree to that. Of so, course. what I'm, I'm instead going to do is I'm going to um, lead the conversation through certain very specific questions. And, of course, you're, you're, you're free to add your um, understanding or analysis that you think might go beyond the mandate of every question. I'll, yes. I'll begin with a very specific question in terms of what's happening within Myanmar. So, uh, as I've said, a lot of lot has happened since the coup and one of the things that has happened is that uh, alongside the popular resistance, a sort of shadow government has emerged, uh, created by deposed civilian lawmakers and politicians, which is now being referred to as the National Unity Government. Uh, what are your views on the National Unity Government? Do you think it, it signals a sort of major shift in the political dynamics of Myanmar? Uh, given that it has been posturing itself as a broad multi-ethnic coalition of sorts? Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Anshuman, for the introduction both to the subject as well as to me. Uh, let me just uh, uh, actually respond to one point in your introduction, which is that we had made two statements, one immediately after the coup and one in the after the closed uh, Security Council meeting. We had also actually issued one statement in the Human Rights Council uh, which right. was also quite quite strong in terms of words, short of, I think, the one element that has been missing. I think our statements have said everything, but we have stopped short of outright condemnation and description of the uh, of the coup as a coup. Uh, but, you know, that's just for the record uh, in terms of uh, uh, the statements we have made. Uh, now, to your uh, sort of very pertinent question, you know, about the significance of the national unity government. So I think there are two points that I would like to make there. Uh, one is that clearly the national unity government is an advance in terms of just the political span that it occupies on uh, the election results, which was a clear-cut victory for the National League of Democracy led by Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, so to that extent, the national unity government includes uh, not just the NLD as represented in the uh, committee representing the Pyodong Su Hutao, that is the parliament, but also elements from the CDM, elements from 
some of the ethnic political parties, uh, the general strikes committee and so on. But it is not complete in the sense that we cannot say that it is inclusive and fully uh, includes all uh, the political elements who matter uh, in Myanmar today. So I would say to that extent, it is still a work in progression. Uh, the progress is that it has actually announced a government uh, and even announced a cabinet. Um, the, the incompletion is that, uh, you know, as you called it, a shadow government. It is for all practical purposes, a virtual or a, or a paper government. It doesn't really have, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't really have, uh, 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 it doesn't really have a presence on the ground in the sense of being able to govern uh, a, a piece of territory. Uh, so it is operating in that kind of gray zone. It is not even an exile government uh, for the moment. Uh, but at least it is an entity that uh, both the Myanmar people who are resisting the military coup, as well as the international community can look at uh, as an alternative uh, as and when uh, it you know, as in when it uh, uh, it advances. Well, that's what I would say for it right now. Right. Um, Ambassador, before I go and ask you your specific views on how should or whether at all India should engage with the NEG, uh, mm. I want to get your broad view on what you believe uh, or how you see India's response to the coup so far, which includes, let's say, not using the word coup um, mm. and, and the limited, if I may put it that way, the limited condemnation that India has yeah, uh, yeah. made over the violence uh, that has unfolded yeah. in, the, in the country. So how do you believe, has, has India approached this pragmatically? Is this a pragmatic strategy or do you think India should have done something more? No, I, I think on the whole, India has done, in terms of statement, in terms of saying, it has uh, uh, said all the right things. It has condemned the violence. It has asked for a restoration of the democratic transition. It has asked for a release of political prisoners. And in some cases, uh, in the in later cases, it's also been quite forceful in the condemnation of violence. Um, I, I think there are good reasons for not going uh, as much of the rest of Asia has done into an actual condemnation. I think uh, among the many reasons, the one most important would be that at least it allows you to keep channels of communication with the Tamadaw and with the, uh, you know, with the, the uh, with the, uh, effectively the military government in place uh, in Napido right now. And that is useful and will be useful as and when at any time there is space for diplomacy, there is space for even talks or, uh, you know, who knows, perhaps uh, even some kind of dialogue or uh, uh, not that uh, we would be, uh, I'm recommending insertion into it, but in terms of any kind of political role, uh, good officer's role or any other kind of role in future. Uh, so I would say that for the time being, it's in keeping with uh, Asian responses in, in general. It's also in keeping with responses of countries that have built up stakes uh, in Myanmar over the last uh, you know, 60, 70 years, actually starting particularly from the 1962 coup. Uh, effectively, any company or any government that wanted to deal with Myanmar that had any stakes whether it was economic, security, strategic, uh, political, you know, uh, ethnic or otherwise, uh, for the last 60 years has had, to, 55 years has had to actually deal uh, with the military government of one kind or the other. Uh, and there are good reasons not to uh, uh, jettison it uh, altogether. Uh, but the real issue really is 
you know, what are you going to use that for? What are you going to use those channels of communication for? And there we are still at an, uh, you know, developing situation. Right. But do you believe um, in many ways, and this has been argued by many so far, that um, India should at a level diversify, if not uh, uh, redirect its engagement in Myanmar. Uh, by diversify, I particularly mean speaking to certain civilian formations, if not the popular resistance movement, which so far remains more or less leaderless, um, so to say. Um, so my specific question here is, do you think India should open a public communication channel? Um, I say pub public with a specific intent because, because back channels have their own logic, uh, which is not uh, what I'm talking about here. Do, do, do you think India should open a public channel of communication with the NUG or, so to say, broadly speaking, the civilian uh, politicians in the country? Um, you know, I would be hoping that given our position in terms of uh, being in favor of the democratic transition and also, uh, you know, seeing the outcome of the election results, uh, we should be keeping in touch with uh, the democratic um, uh, forces, the democratic sentiments whether it is through the CDM or the NLD, uh, to the extent that we can. Uh, but when you say publicly, um, you know, there's the question of whether uh, we should formally recognize it or just be open about our, uh, about our communication. Um, I, you know, a lot there really depends on the force of the democratic agitation and the movement itself. Uh, I would say that, you know, in any situation of churn, uh, a government, particularly a neighbor, a consequential neighbor, which has a lot of interest as well as stake, uh, should keep two things in mind, should keep uh, in mind the, uh, the democratic sentiment, uh, uh, number one, and should keep in mind also um, that, uh, uh, you know, that it should be engaged with all parties at this point of time. Because as you know, it's, this is, a, as I described it, it is the churn. Uh, the outcome is not yet clear. Uh, you know, we had a situation in 1988 uh, where we uh, took a very strongly, and there were very good reasons for that, a very strongly pro-democracy stand. Uh, some of it came from Burmese exiles in India who were also quite vocal through the external services division of All India Radio. Some of it came through the very large Indian origin community that used to live in Myanmar that came back after the coup in 1960s, uh, as Burma went down its Burmese road to uh, socialism. And some of it also came out of, you know, the very fact that just about 10 years before 1988, we had ourselves uh, come out of uh, an emergency in India. Uh, so, you know, we took a very uh, vocal, a very public stance at that time. And as it turned out, the Tamadaw was able to suppress that agitation and then on account of our security concerns, mainly in the Northeast, uh, we were obliged to, uh, you know, to re, re, um, rebuild our relations with the Myanmar military. Uh, so I think, you know, that kind of situation still hangs heavily, whether this whole question of whether the Tamadaw will succeed in imposing its version of order and suppress the popular agitation or not. My own personal feeling in this is that it, this time it is not going to be able to do it. The resistance, some even call it a, a revolution, is far stronger. But it is very difficult at this stage to see a clear-cut resolution one way or the other. Uh, the Tamado already has a monopoly of force, and it has, uh, uh, you know, has over, has almost uh, 
uh, you know, a very overpowering force and it shows a willingness to use that. And as time goes on, uh, you know, it will also uh, wear down the ability of ordinary people to resist. Uh, so I think, you know, countries, especially neighbors who have a lot of um, stakes in a country, will want to keep, you know, uh, channels of communication open one way or the other. Uh, but as I said, it should not only be towards the Tamado, it should be with all political forces. I would say in this case, it should include the NUG, the NLD, the ethnic parties, uh, you know, uh, many other kinds of um, uh, citizens committees, uh, particularly those closer to your border. And uh, we should be in a position to judge and assess uh, the direction that this uh, resistance is taking and make the right calls for the right reasons at the right time. Right. Um, Ambassador, I'll just quickly now go into uh, a bit yeah. of the regional dynamics, particularly how ASEAN sure. is involved in this and uh, right. how India sees that. So in India's first statement from the 1st of April, which our um, uh, um, permanent representative of the UN, Ambassador Tirumurti made, um, one of the points mentioned in that statement was that India recognizes ASEAN efforts to resolve the crisis. Um, and the, we, we also saw how ASEAN met uh, earlier this month and, you know, took out a five-point mm. consensus. But mm. what... April saw, 24, actually, yeah. Um, yes, sorry. Uh, apologies for that. Mm. Uh, but what we saw after that, actually, is that uh, the, 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 the five-point consensus actually uh, struggling to reach some kind of a logical conclusion of what it meant yeah. to set out to do. And one of the things that uh, we heard after that was that the Tatmadaw or the, the um, State Administrative Council, the SEC regime, released a statement saying that while we recognize the uh, ASEAN five-point consensus, um, steps can be taken only after quote-unquote law and order has been restored, right? Yeah. The tone of that statement was clear that the Tatmadaw is not willing to sort of, uh, if I may, allow uh, ASEAN to dictate its sort of domestic agenda or what it wants to do domestically vis-a-vis -vis the resistance movement yeah. or protesters. So do you think in such a situation, firstly, do you believe the ASEAN effort has some meat in it? Do you, do you think it's going to be effective? And number two, do you think India's recognition of the ASEAN effort uh, has any has any uh, sort of effective meaning to it? Uh, do you think it's yeah. going to lead up to something? No, so this is a, a very interesting question. I think. Uh, there are good reasons, and I think some of these I have spelt out in an article that I posted on the CPR website some just uh, before the ASEAN uh, summit. Uh, but let me say that there are some good reasons why ASEAN should take the lead. Um, one is our relations with ASEAN itself. ASEAN greatly values its own centrality, particularly where it concerns one of its member states. Uh, and to the extent that ASEAN takes uh, the lead in this, it keeps away many other contending and competing uh, powers uh, from taking the lead and actually complicating the situation more. You know, I could just give you a, 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 some names if you wish. Uh, if ASEAN were not there and let's say China and the US or Russia uh, and perhaps even Japan were to get into, uh, you know, uh, into uh, get involved in Myanmar, uh, you would bring in actually very major geopolitical actors. And, you know, as it is in the context of the Quad and the Indo-Pacific, there are lots of tensions. Uh, you would actually complicate that situation. So uh, ASEAN, both uh, by virtue of uh, having Myanmar as its member, as well as a kind of, you know, a collective body, a, a regional 
political as well as security uh, structure uh, is best place to be able to treat this as a family problem and deal with it. But having said that, you know, and with due respect and regard to the ASEAN, uh, I'm not very optimistic uh, about this effort unless ASEAN is prepared to go uh, beyond its usual comfort level. Uh, you know, many of the principles uh, of the ASEAN, uh, the, 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 not just the centrality, but even the consensus principle, the principle of non-interference in international affairs, actually works in a very statist and status quo direction. And it seems clear, as you said, from the SAC and from the uh, senior general's comments after he came back, that he intends to proceed uh, with his roadmap um, uh, as he always planned, which is essentially to impose their version of order, uh, law and order as he called it, and possibly the roadmap that he had, which is elections. So he thinks that once he has done that, then he is ready to move uh, towards uh, you know, a kind of uh, uh, some form of uh, mediation or uh, negotiation involving the special envoy and you know the other elements of the uh, of the five point uh, consensus. So I think there is a danger there that uh, ASEAN may be led, uh, you know, along uh, the the Tamado's path, uh, and in the process actually, uh, you know, uh, actually let's put it like this: uh, neglect the str strength and the views of the opposition represented in the NUG. Uh, you know, the NUG for all practical purposes would be considered the opposition uh, in Myanmar. And it would be like Myanmar uh, getting into a dialogue with the opposition in any other ASEAN country. So I don't think in, in spite of the fact of the four pillars and one of the pillars being the people to people pillar, the cultural pillar, uh, I don't think ASEAN is yet developed on that pillar so much that we can have a, a dialogue involving the opposition. ASEAN is conscious of these limitations. Uh, and I think what it has achieved in that five-point consensus is at least in getting a foothold, number one, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, rid, to, uh, to end violence, number two, to provide humanitarian assistance, and number three, to actually uh, you know, have a platform to commence the dialogue. Uh, this is not a small achievement, and particularly if you consider the risks of others getting involved in it. But having said that, I must say that you know ASEAN is not the only player in this. Um, if you look at uh, Myanmar, uh, it has three neighbors that are uh, members of the ASEAN. It also has three neighbors who are not members of ASEAN uh, and who are likely to be impacted, or um, you know, uh, who are likely to be uh, who have to respond in one way or the other. So I'm not sure an, uh, an ASEAN-only solution is a complete solution. I've been writing about this, and I feel that, in fact, if ASEAN wishes to maintain its centrality, it should find ways of involving some of other of uh, Myanmar's uh, neighbors. I recognize that this is difficult because, again, ASEAN does not have the mechanisms of, you know, it would require consensus, and it doesn't necessarily have the mechanisms. Uh, but this could easily be done by individual diplomacy, by, uh, you know, by let's say the appointment of a special envoy could include uh, fairly deep consultations with other neighbors uh, in working out a, a, a solution that uh, you know also takes on board uh, the others who are likely to be majorly impacted 
The one country, for example, that will be impacted is Thailand. Uh, but uh, we know that you know we share a 1,600 kilometer border. Uh, there are many cross-border ethnic communities on both sides. Uh, you know there is democratic sentiment in India in favor of democracy in Myanmar and particularly in the Northeast. Um, so you know these are things that are going to have political and other uh, ripple effects on the Indian side, and uh, the Indian side should be brought in at some stage because. Uh, uh, as I said, you know, it's an immediate neighbor uh, and it concerns it directly. Right. Um, that makes sense. In fact, um, I think yesterday the APHR, which is the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights, um, they released a statement um, which, in which they, they pointed out that the mechanism of the five-point consensus was actually not um, moving ahead at a pace that it should have. So right. you've got to watch how that progressive yeah it would have been uh, very different if uh, let's say the senior general had imme immediately invited uh, the special envoy to come because that would be a signal that he is willing to talk um, both to ASEAN you know in greater detail uh, in terms of the you know the, the key issues uh, as well as perhaps to the opposition the opposition in any form you know if uh, as is very clear the Tamador refuses to uh, refuses to recognize uh, the NUG, uh, there are many other civic bodies and, you know, uh, uh, there are many other bodies, including political parties that it could, uh, it could talk to. Right. But, but that hasn't happened. And in fact, um, the, you know, the, the senior general's strategy seems to be get control, then talk. And I'm not so sure how long it is going to take to get control. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, agitations continue. They have just formed, changed character. They have become smaller. They have become more flash kind of protests. Uh, but they continue in all parts of the country. There have been, you know, uh, armed incidents, uh, including in some of the peripheral areas, in the ethnic areas. There have been, you know, an escalation of the conflict. Um, and it's difficult to say that. And you know, uh, you probably are aware of what is happening in terms of the economy, the banking sector. Um, transport and logistics sector, people are predicting uh, a humanitarian crisis, um, the business is virtually collapsing, uh, there are companies that are pulling out, um, uh, the, the government is trying to force back, you know, taking measures to force back the, the economy and society, it's not working, uh, the education system is virtually paralyzed with students, teachers and parents not cooperating. Uh, with the military government. Um, so I, I don't think the, the military government at this point of time is conveying a sense of control. And there's no saying how long it will take. Right. I'm actually going to pick up from there uh, in terms of what you spoke about the situation there. Uh, many have argued, um, I think, including the International Crisis Group, uh, which, which has a very deep presence in Myanmar in terms of producing analysis reports and stuff. Um, yes. that, that the situation, if not, a, if not uh, a failed state, the situation certainly exudes one of a failing state um, within the country. And as you talked about the insurgent in incidents, what is actually notable is that um, we are seeing uh, an, an escalation or the increase in frequency of certain insurgent attacks in uh, not just the ethnic peripheries, but also the Bamar heartland. We have seen yeah. several insurgent attacks over the past two to three weeks um, in fact, I've been tracking them closely. We have seen bomb attacks 
arson attacks against both military targets and soft uh, government targets. For instance, certain officials, uh, election commission officials and officials of the GAD, the General Administration mm -hmm. Department in areas like Bago, mm -hmm. Yangon mm -hmm. and Mandalay, which is the core Bama mm -hmm. heartland. And, mm -hmm. and as you would know, the, the Bama heartland is usually calmer relative to the uh, ethnic peripheries. It's relatively more non-insurgent, if I may say, mm -hmm. uh, put it that way. Um, so what we are seeing are sort of rocket attacks in, there was a rocket attack in the Tongu air base in Bago region the other day. Mm -hmm. um, so we are seeing this sort of uh, uh, unique kind of escalation of um, armed attacks within mm -hmm. uh, in the Bamar heartland, which is different from what we, the pattern of armed conflict in the ethnic peripheries that we have been seeing over the last yeah. two decades at least. Um, do you think this signals a worsening situation wherein you know we might see the situation quickly devolve into um, a full-scale civil war of sorts uh, and when that happens do you believe uh, then that India's support to the department uh, and including this includes arms sales which India has been doing over the past few years um, will be seen as New Delhi taking a side in a civil conflict so I'll keep um, you know the 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 New Delhi or the India side a little separate from what's actually happening happening in terms of um, you know uh, armed activity. Um, so you're right. You know what we are seeing is lots of different uh, clashes, different kinds of clashes. Sometimes there are uh, you know clashes that look like urban insurrections. You saw what happened in Mindat. Uh, you know what is happening in Kaya. Uh, you draw emphasis to what was happening in the Bama heartland. Remember in 1988 also, the, it was the Bama heartland that was the, you know, the, the epicenter of the protests. Uh, and it's not only just, you know, big cities like Yangon, Bago and Mandalay. Actually, what we are seeing is a lot of political activity in Zagang region, you know, which is the largest uh, region uh, adjacent to India. So there are many small towns right up to Tamu, Tamu, Kale, Debain, uh, several places which have had a history of, uh, you know, uh, of resistance earlier. Uh, you, Mindat itself is not very far. It's a Chin area, uh, a little away from the border, uh, but also not that, away, that far away. And of course, uh, you know, linked uh, to India through the Kuki Chin Zomi uh, kind of population. Uh, so, yes, what, and at the same time, you're seeing, you know, fairly repressive military activity, lots of controls on communication, uh, the ethnic uh, armed organizations and the ethnic parties not all being on the same, uh, uh, same plate, so to say, on the same platform. Uh, so, you know, the, the risk is that you'll see lots of localized conflicts with even new players coming in. For example, People's Defense Forces uh, somewhere a civilian defense, a Chin defense force in Mindat. You know, there have been other little groups that have come up uh, uh, in Tamu and Kale and uh, other places as well. So there's a real chance that you may have many localized conflicts that are not able, uh, both politically as well as uh, logistically, to be able to uh, link and connect uh, with each other, which of course, uh, you know, uh, works to the advantage of the Tamado, which have simply much more superior, uh, you know, organization uh, and, and force. Uh, so this, and you know, this is not likely to go down because as resistance grows, people will find ways and means to get more and more arms and weaponry. Some of it may 
increase in sophistication. Some of them may actually come out of ambushes or overrunning of uh, military camps. Uh, so, you know, at least in my reading, given the very strong determination there is in the resistance to not capitulate this time, uh, uh, this, this will continue and it will continue both in the Bama areas and the, um, and the ethnic areas. Let me add one thing, you know, after 1988, the Tamadaw was able to, you know, conflate uh, Bama, you know, call it nationalism, uh, Buddhism and uh, military power, you know, in somehow uh, ultimately, uh, ultimately um, winning over, not winning over is the wrong word, but ultimately, you know, uh, placing a lid on the agitation in Bama areas, uh, while, you know, it made peace with the ethnic areas and, the, and a kind of low level conflict continued in, in parts of the ethnic areas. This time, I don't see that it will, it will be able to play the ethnic and the religious card to be able to pacify the Bama population as it did so last time. Uh, and uh, again, on the ethnic side, you have some of the ethnic armies who are fighting and some who are still watching and waiting and some which are maybe even a little reticent to join. Uh, so I don't see you know, a un a, the kind of joint command unity that some uh, EAOs are trying. I also don't see that happening. So if I look at it overall, uh, you know, you don't have a very clear picture of, you know, uh, of uh, one united resistance and, and the Tamadu. As far as India is concerned, yes, it will come under pressure, uh, particularly to link, uh, you know, its relations with the Tamadu, and particularly uh, uh, lethal equipment. But, you know, I must sort of um, underline a couple of things. India's relationship with the Tamadaw has been very different from a kind of political relationship. Essentially, it has been a relationship where uh, we have met some of their larger defense interests. And particularly, uh, you know, you've seen the major part of it on the maritime front, um, uh, you know, uh, with, the, with the Myanmar Navy. Um, uh, which is not directly involved in this conflict. Uh, of course, we have a strong relationship with the army as well. Um, and on the Indian side, it has been, uh, you know, a, a relationship of security cooperation, uh, mainly to deal with our security concerns in the Northeast. By and large, we have kept away. Um, we have supported democracy. We have dealt with the Tamado for its, its defense needs and our security needs. Uh, but we haven't taken the side of the Tamadoy at any point on uh, the internal political issues. And in fact, I think we managed the cohabitation uh, quite well. In fact, better than perhaps most other countries, uh, other than, say, perhaps Japan. Even China didn't quite manage it uh, quite so well because uh, the, the Tamadoy was quite irritated with uh, Chinese activities on the, with some of the ethnic armed organizations. Uh, but yes, there will be pressure on limiting defense supplies. Uh, and I think under the circumstances, uh, India should avoid too deep an association with the Myanmar military in the way, for example, that uh, uh, Russia and to some extent even Israel have gotten. China in any case is assumed to be uh, with the Tamadon. Uh, so I don't think we should be identified with the military repression of the civilian movement in any way. And 
there are many other ways we can still con continue uh, a, a kind of institutional relationship which is aimed at their defense and our security without getting into uh, internal repression. Right, that makes sense. In fact, um, um, this is this is I, I completely agree with the analysis, and I think so far the manner in which India has postured uh, its relationship or projected its relationship with the Tatmadaw, um, it's largely has been limited to security cooperation. So there is a right. there is a, a wide uh, maneuver area which sort of I think India can comfortably navigate if it wants to now, um, right, and, and pull out of too too deep a cooperation. Uh, but yeah. Ambassador, one last question. I mean, this is a sure. Go ahead. Um, and we can. There are many aspects to it, but I will limit this particular podcast um, so far to the conversation that we have had. But you, you briefly touched on this, but I want to get your views on um, a recent decision by, that New Delhi took, uh, and I say New Delhi because this is in specific reference to the central government, Union Government of India, yeah. in which hard. Yeah. Uh, Certain border states like Mizoram and Manipur yeah. taking Chin refugees yeah. mostly. Uh, yeah. Some Chin refugees and other non Chin refugees also. Mm. Um, it came under a lot of public pressure within India also after that, uh, when there was yeah. a certain directive by the Manipur government that was uh, released in the press um, yeah. that the refugees must be turned away. Um, yeah. so after the backlash, I think that directive was withdrawn. But what we mm. saw was that the, the Mizo government, the Mizoram government, and particularly the chief mm. minister. Uh, Zoram Thangka, uh, he, he sort of um, reject the central government's directive and said that no, we should take mm. them in. And since then, mm. we have seen uh, on an upwards of more than three thousand sort of refugees, Chin refugees, take shelter in Mizoram. And also, as you said, because of the ethnic cross-border ethnic affinities mm. within the broader mm. Zo fold that they share. Um, yeah. So, do you believe, firstly, that it was a prudent decision on the part of the central government to so publicly and sort of vehemently close the border for Chin refugees or ask the border states to not take them. And secondly, do you think from now on India should keep a largely open border policy uh, as far yeah. as uh, asylums fleeing from the violence in Myanmar is concerned? Yeah. Um, thank you, Angshuman. You know, actually, I uh, responded to this question. I don't know if you were able to see an, a long interview that I did for um, uh, something called the Partition Studies Quarterly. Um, in which I address this issue. Uh, basically, I feel that the central government circular uh, on you know prohibiting um, you know cross border entry uh, was, I think, first of all, just a basically reflects home ministry reaction. Um, you know, all countries, uh, home ministries and immigration departments, their reflex action is to is to close. Uh, but and I think it may also have been. Uh, uh, you know, if I can be honest about it, uh, frank about it, it can, may also have been to do with a lack of, uh, you know, empathy uh, with the sentiments uh, of the peripheral states as well as, you know, with the, uh, with at that point of time, the people of Myanmar. But I think the very fact that there was a strong reaction in the Northeast states, Manipur and Mizoram in particular, uh, and that the center has soft pedal on that uh, is an indication that uh, probably it was not a very well considered, you know, all of government approach. Now, having said that, I think it's very difficult for any home ministry or any government to, you know, actually pursue uh, an open door policy to refugees because that would be also misunderstood. It would be understood 
by, in this case, the, the Tamado as somehow, you know, uh, encouraging or abetting uh, the, the, not just a refugee movement, but perhaps even a kind of uh, resistance from exile or resistance from across the border. Uh, so, but in general, what I would say is they know that there are several cases. There are cases of journalists coming in. There are cases of people fleeing, you know, people from the security forces who have, uh, who have fled. There are cases of conscientious objectors. Uh, and there are cases of people who have just been, you know, driven away from their homes. And I think we should have a sympathetic uh, policy, uh, you know, with all kinds of checks and balances. Uh, clearly, whatever it is would have to be temporary. Uh, clearly, we cannot, uh, you know, openly adopt a position of support uh, for, you know, let's say ethnic uh, military support from this side. But that may well be another concern of our uh, security establishment uh, that, you know, given the cross-border ethnic ties, given the fact that there are uh, armed organizations on uh, what we call IIGs on the Indian side, as well as EOs and you know new resistance centers coming up on that side, that in due course there could be spillovers or you know it's, uh, there could be uh, a kind of mutual uh, effect um, that you know could go beyond just uh, providing shelter. Uh, to other kinds of support. So I think the government, uh, both the state government as well as particularly the central government, would have to take all these factors uh, together. And But I would say, in you know, the short answer to your point is, uh, we should realize that people there in Myanmar and in the border are being punished. Uh, there is a, There are punitive measures that this has impacted people, that many people will need shelter uh, and protection, uh, and that India should not close the border, uh, but should have an empathetic response to the crackdown by the military in Myanmar and help those who are uh, in, you know, uh, suffering and in need. And that would be in keeping with our tradition, uh, even when we were a much poorer, uh, nation than and weaker nation than we are now. Right. All through the 60s, all through the period when, you know, the military crackdown, uh, we received refugees from Myanmar. We received refugees in post the 1988 crackdown as well. Uh, we never really had a closed door policy. Uh, a, a lot of them were uh, absorbed, uh, you know, in the cross-ethnic ties um, uh, in the border, uh, but you know, again, we cannot expect the northeast, uh, in the general city of their spirit, to absorb all the burden. Uh, there would at some point be need for some burden sharing as well. Right, right now, the numbers are still not very big, but uh, we don't know how this will uh, evolve and develop, and so we need to think ahead on these points. Uh, the point that you raised. Right. And I think there's also the situation of the COVID-19 that we should not get. Um, that is again, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention that because that's again a very germane issue. As you know, in Myanmar also, there is virtually no uh, COVID vaccination program at this moment because of the uh, health infrastructure falling apart and because of the disturbances. Exactly. And I think in the past few weeks, the cases in Mizoram uh, have been spiraling, mm. including the right. 
So I right. think um, that needs to also be taken into account. And needless to say, we are living in ex in extremely complex times in a, in a way right. uh, which may be called as unprecedented in modern history. Uh, Absolutely. One layer of crisis on top of another. Um, yeah. And in itself, Myanmar has always been a very, very complex country, uh, even for its closest observers. That there, is, there are no easy answers and there is no black and white. Um, right. That, um, that one solid yeah. or monolithic position uh, should, right. not only doesn't exist, but shouldn't exist. I yeah. Would say. Yeah. Just two points that I would like to add, Anjum. Sure, sure. One is, you know, that in our response, you know, we, we should maintain and should have a humanistic response, a humane and humanistic response. And two, you know, this business about, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, re of repression and resistance, is something very historic. It has been happening all through Myanmar history uh, from the time of the British. At that time, the repressors were the British and the resistance came from all kinds of uh, rebellions that followed the breakdown of the Konbaung feudal order. You know, right up to, uh, you know, if you remember the Sayasan rebellion, uh, Uttama in Rakhine state, uh, there were many kinds of rebellions that were taking place. Uh, and in fact, the British responded to it uh, with instruments, legal and other instruments, uh, developed in India, including the introduction of sedition laws, the penal code, Indian penal code provided the framework for the uh, Burmese uh, penal code. Uh, and essentially, you know, uh, the Tamado has also been following uh, the British pattern of reception, uh, of repression in Tamado, in, in, in Myanmar. Uh, so, you know, in many ways, uh, the colonial, post-colonial history uh, between India and Myanmar, partly because the British ruled Myanmar from uh, Burma, from India, uh, you know, right up to 1935 or 37, uh, is very closely intertwined. And many things from India were imported there and continue to be, uh, you know, used by the, uh, the present-day military government uh, that actually go back to British times. And the patterns of resistance and Repression also are pretty much the same. Right. I actually, Ambassador, I appreciate that very much. Um, your emphasis on the fact, and and this is not the first time you're doing this. Your constant emphasis on the element of humanism and humanitarianism, even within a real politics, foreign policy strategy. I think that's correct. Yes. That's I think important, that's... and that's something that we actually don't get to see um, in in many narratives that come out of. Um, uh, and I'm I'm going to be frank here. Many narratives that come out from former diplomats. So it's exactly. very yeah. refreshing, to, refreshing to see this. You know, in a way, it touches on larger things. You know, this whole idea, uh, very modern idea of my country first, right. uh, it's actually a very Hobbesian, uh, um, you know, idea, which totally goes against the principle of international cooperation. Right. Um, so, you know, I think we need to look at, if you're serious about diplomacy, serious about cooperation, serious about international relations, it cannot only be based on uh, the principle of my country first. Uh, you know, there has to be a larger uh, humanitarian, uh, you know, umbrella in which we look at mutual interests, each other's interests, even human interests. Right. Absolutely. I think that is always a, uh, I w in my opinion, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an incorrect assumption that national interest or regional interest or real political interest can't go hand in hand with human interests or humanitarian right. interests, so to say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but so in fact, one could argue that there is a much greater space for enlightened self-interest. Absolutely. 
I think, I think and mutual interest. Yeah, yeah, that's perhaps the appropriate term here. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for joining us and giving us your time for this uh, podcast. Welcome. Thank you.